Hello and welcome back to the Institute of International Finance's podcast series, All About the Green, where we speak with topic experts on the exciting and ever-changing world of sustainable finance. I'm your host, Tim Adams, President and CEO of the IIF. This podcast episode comes from the webinar series that we launched earlier this year entitled Common Sense Conversations on Climate Change, developed to explore and highlight a wide array of topics related to climate change, with a special focus on the effects on the financial services industry and the broader economy. These dialogues are critical given the unique capability of financial institutions and markets to effectively identify risks and fund solutions. Though the topics vary, each episode takes a deep dive into ways to encourage pragmatic, common sense solutions to facilitate the transition to a low carbon and ultimately a net zero carbon economy. Today, we have two excellent, knowledgeable guests, Julia Hamm, who is the present CEO of the Smart Electric Power Line since 2004. The SEPA is a culmination of a variety of different entities that have been involved in clean energy. We also have Rob Gramlick, who is the founder and president of Grid Strategies. He's also executive director of Americans for a Clean Energy Grid. And the Watt Coalition is on the board of the Business Council for Sustainable Energy Foundation as well. Thanks, Julia. Thanks, Rob, for joining us. Uh, I know you're very busy. I, I see all that you're doing online and interviews and then just running your respective entities. So thank you for joining us today. Rob, I'll start with you, but I'll make the question to both of you. The title today is The Grid for the 21st Century. What is the grid? I saw one author described it as the largest machine in the world, the greatest engineering achievement of the 20th century. Is there a single grid or there are multiple grids? What is the grid? Rob, I'll turn to you. Great to be with you, Tim, and I appreciate this attention on on the grid. Uh, I I think the transmission system is extremely important, and it is an integrated machine. In the United States, we have the Eastern, the Western, and the Texas interconnection. They are three independently operated systems all the way from the generating unit down to the toaster. And these machines are getting much more complicated, as we'll discuss here, with a lot more active demand side and uh, a lot more dispersed distributed uh, generation on the uh, supply side. And of course, it's the transmission system and the system operators who integrate it all together and keeping the system in balance and making sure uh, load is served 24 seven, 87, 60 hours a year is is, uh, really important and really complicated, which now as we look at climate change and integrating clean energy, it becomes that much more important. So that's that's why I focus on it and the groups I'm associated with do the same. And Julia, who owns the grid? Who runs it? Who operates it? Uh, you know, is it public, private? Great question. Let me expand a little bit on Rob's great explanation around the transmission system. I really like to think about the electric power system in three primary buckets. We have the generation. That's actually what's creating the electricity. Then we have the transmission system, which typically is what is moving that power over long distances. And then we have the distribution system, which are more sort of localized wires that are actually delivering the electricity to homes and businesses. So really those three pieces, the generation, the transmission, and the distribution, all together are really the entirety of the electric system. And to your question, Tim, it it really is all of the above. Uh, You know, we have private ownership, we have public ownership, we have government ownership. So that is part of the complexity of the space. The industry overall, in terms of uh, the transmission, the distribution is, is a highly regulated industry, but there are certainly parts of the industry that are not regulated, that are very entrepreneurial, fast paced, changing in a very dynamic way. So again, a very complex system, but 
what many, many different ownership structures of the generation, the transmission, and the distribution system across the sector. Both of you are passionate about clean energy. So we'll back up a little bit from the grid. I'd like to hear a little bit about how you got interested in clean energy. And then taking us back to the grid, why is modernizing the grid so important to clean energy generally? Rob, and then I'll go to you, Julia. Well, personally, I I got my start in just high school and college. I always gravitated towards environmental issues. I was acid rain and then climate. My hero and role model, my father, who some of your members may know, Ned Gramlich was a Federal Reserve governor. And before he died in 2007, we would talk about how climate change was really the existential threat to humanity. And, you know, if he were doing it over again, that's what he would focus on. And of course, that's what I started focusing on. So to me, it's it's kind of... uh, simple. If climate change is the most important issue facing humanity and renewable energy is the most promising and low-cost solution we have and know at this time, and it can scale very well, but the only barrier to that is the grid and transmission, then we need to put a lot of resources into transmission. And there are a lot of ways to do that. There's a lot of success stories around the country and the world doing that. And so that's really what I've been focusing on. Julia, same to you. I really fell into this industry. I love it. Once I got in, I have never had a desire to leave. It's such an exciting industry to work in. But I literally, dating myself a couple of decades ago, answered an ad in the Washington Post when I was just a year out of college that didn't even talk about what industry it was in. It was essentially an entry-level marketing position. And it turned out being working for my current organization that had a different name at the time. The fast-paced, changing, dynamic nature of the industry is what I love. And climate change is really is one of the biggest existential threats to all of us on this planet that we need to be focusing on. The entire energy system was not built with today's technologies in mind. And so there's so much work that needs to be done to ensure that the system, the grid itself, is ready and prepared to accept these new technologies in a way that ensures that we continue to maintain safe, affordable, reliable, clean, and equitable electricity for all customers. That's why, you know, the work is so important, those five things, safe, affordable, reliable, equitable, and clean. We have to have all of those in balance. People don't talk much about the grid. It is not a topic of most cocktail conversation, except when something goes wrong. Obviously, what we saw in Texas over the winter, my in-laws live in Houston, they went days without power. What we see on the West Coast, especially now with extreme heat conditions, Pacific Northwest, New York, tends to be only focus or attention when there is vulnerabilities or a crisis. Other than the extreme weather conditions we've seen, what are other vulnerabilities? What should we be worried about in terms of the grid? Well, I'll chime in to start, and I actually don't want to immediately move away from the extreme weather events, because one very important consideration that many people are really just beginning to wake up to now is that we have to invest in, plan, and operate the system based on whole new weather patterns, right? Historically, we've, we've done those things based on historical weather patterns and historical weather data. We cannot do that anymore. That is one of many pieces of the problem that was faced in Texas. So we really need to think differently about weather and what the weather is going to be like as a result of climate change in the coming decades and change how we plan and invest in the system. So I think that's a critically important point. I don't want to move too quickly past the weather events. 
Um, but on top of that, there are a lot of cybersecurity issues. That is one of the biggest up at night issues for the electric utility industry. It's both actually cyber and physical security. You know, some people may remember there was a big issue in California where there actually was a power facility that was taken out as a result of physical threats, people actually shooting at some electrical equipment. And the industry has gone a long way to really prevent some of those types of threats but the cyber threats are increasing, right? We know that. And that's not just the electric industry. That's all industries. One of the unique challenges for our industry is that, you know, we're seeing this huge emergence of IoT devices in the home that play a role in the electric system now. We're seeing more distributed devices, batteries, electric vehicles, rooftop solar systems that have inverters, all of these smaller pieces of equipment that are connected to the electric grid that introduce new potential vulnerabilities to the grid. Now, that doesn't mean we shouldn't deploy them. We absolutely should. But we need to make sure we have a focus on how do we make sure that with all of these millions and millions of new devices being connected to the system, that we are protecting ourselves against additional vulnerabilities. And that's a great point. So Rob, do we suffer from the challenge that uh, we're becoming increasingly reliant on electrification, decarbonization of the grid before the grid becomes sufficiently resilient and reliable, both in terms of technology, but political perceptions of its reliability? Yes, there's no question there's increased reliance on the, on the grid. We're relying on electricity for just about everything we do at home and in work, as I don't need to tell anybody here, uh, you can just see it everywhere in your daily life. And so I, I'm sure your uh, members think a lot about insurance and risk management issues. And that's, that's how we do need to think about planning the electric power system. I hear utility executives sometimes say that electricity is 6% of the economy, but it's the first 6%. It's the 6% on which all the rest of the economy relies, and it really is critical infrastructure, and so we need to build it out. The main risk management strategy that utilities and power systems have had is network effects. So you basically try to remove the critical nature of any one facility by having a network, so if one link in the chain falls down, you have other routes you can deliver power across multiple systems. That's how the electric industry grew up. Uh, uh, it wasn't just a whole bunch of utilities, you know, 500 utilities around the United States and similar in other countries operating on their own. They started building connections to each other so they have more of a network. And that's what we need to expand on. That's our, I think, our, our greatest source of resilience is those large regional and interregional connections. But that said, the threats are numerous from many sources and the access points, when you think about cybersecurity, are so many that we also really need to think about local resilience, whether it's a hospital, a bank, uh, you name it, or just residential customers need to think about what is the backup plan in case the grid goes down. Rob, you talk about in your recent congressional testimony, the importance of large geographic movements of power and Joel, you've written a, a microgrid playbook on community resilience. So what's the difference between macro, micro, and a smart grid? Help us with some of the taxonomy. You, you need both the micro and the macro, and they are different. I focus mostly on the macro. And the way to think about that is you mentioned these weather patterns, Tim, but almost without exception, the grid is wider than these weather patterns. So winter storm Uri in February, there was plenty of available power in the Southeast and the West. It just couldn't get into Texas. Whereas the systems to the North and the upper Great Plains had 13 gigawatts of power being imported and they kept, largely kept the lights on. 
And we've seen the same with polar vortex incidents. If they're in the Midwest, then we ship a lot of power from the Mid-Atlantic into the Midwest and vice versa. When the system moves to the east, we import power from the Midwest. So that's how reliability and resilience are largely being preserved on the macro system. But to do that, we do have a lot of weak links in those chains. So building out the interregional transmission, there's actually a bill in Congress, I was testifying about that, to direct our U.S. Federal Energy Regulatory Commission to improve interregional transmission planning for that very purpose. So uh, we need to work on that and ultimately get to a macro grid. Some countries around the world, like China, are building these thousand kV and above transmission lines from remote areas with uh, great resource availability to uh, load centers. We need to do more of that here. Europe is doing that, more connecting their, you know, their hydro system with renewables. So um, we need to do that on the macro grid system. I'll let Julia talk about the, the micro grids. Yeah, we spend a lot of time at my organization, the Smart Electric Power Alliance, thinking about resilience at the local level. We do a lot of work in the area of microgrids. So for those who aren't really familiar or, or intimately involved in the electric system, just a bit of terminology definition here. You hear people talk about microgrids. You hear people talk about off-grid. Those are not the same thing. Often when people are talking about off-grid systems, that means they are not connected to the larger grid, right? So they are not connected by poles and wires to the larger system that Rob was talking about. With microgrids, microgrids are connected to the larger system. But what microgrids are able to do is when the system goes down, the microgrid is able to switch and operate independently from the grid. So this really is a key resilience opportunity. And we are spending more and more time thinking about how do we leverage microgrids for disadvantaged communities? Because these disadvantaged communities are often the ones that are disproportionately impacted by these extreme weather events. So this is an area where I would really advocate we, we need to see more investment. We need to see more investment in localized microgrids specifically for resilience purposes for communities that are most harmed by these types of events. And there's lots of different forms microgrids can take, you know, all the way down to the sort of nano level. Sometimes people talk about nanogrids, right? That might be a house that has solar and storage at the house so you can keep a single home on. Or you might have a community microgrid and a community microgrid might have a dozen homes plus a community center as part of it. Or you might have a microgrid that's focused on a hospital or a fire station or some sort of other critical infrastructure. So increasingly, microgrids are one of the hottest topics that we are seeing within the industry in the U.S., recognizing that as hard as we are working to make sure that the grid does not go down and we need to continue to do that, it's never going to be foolproof, right? There are going to be times when the system goes down. So how do we make sure that people have access to power, at least for critical essential functions, whether it's refrigerating medication for, for medical equipment and, and all of these sorts of things that unfortunately in the past just have not been an option. Before we get to scaling and, and the technology component, I just want to double back to one issue about public perception. And how much of your time do you spend in just information and clearing the record. For example, during the Texas storm, there's a lot of accusations. This is, you know, this is a failure of, of uh, wind energy. See, wind energy doesn't work. We need less wind energy, obviously from a state like Texas, where I think renewables, maybe it's the largest producer of renewables in the, in the country. If not, it's California or Texas. How do you deal with the perception that sometimes renewables are not reliable, to your point about reliability, uh, and how much of an information campaign needs to occur? 
Rob, Julian? Well, I'll, I'll start. I did a lot with the, the Texas and the large-scale renewable issues. First of all, reliability is only a system concept. It's not a generator-specific concept. So you, you can't say nuclear plants are unreliable because they run out of cooling water. You can't say gas generators are unreliable because they freeze sometimes. You can't say coal power plants are unreliable because their coal piles freeze. All those things do happen, but it's the system that is reliable or is not reliable. And then the same goes for wind and solar. No resource is operating all the time. So it's up to the system operators and planners to put it all together. Every day I've been alive, the sun came up every day. It wasn't always as bright, but you can actually predict pretty well what's going to happen. Uh, we have very good wind and solar forecasts, so you know if it's there or if it's not there. And you can add a little cushion, as we always do. In fact, the cushion you need for the big power plants is even bigger, because if you lose 1,000 megawatts instantaneously, that's a lot harder as a system operator. I used to work for PJM. Well, that's a lot harder as a system operator to deal with than a kind of a slow-moving over two, three-hour event where the wind may die down. So you plan the system around the resources that you have, and you can certainly do a very reliable, high renewable power system with 80% or so, say, from uh, wind and solar. And, you know, eventually we may have uh, clean, firm sources uh, as well, so we could get to 100% decarbonization. But part of your question, Tim, is yes, we, we have to do a lot of communication uh, about that. And it's unfortunate that uh, sometimes these issues get uh, so politically hot that people pull the partisan triggers. And I think we've seen that in, in Texas, and a lot of folks are trying to kind of clear that up and avoid that type of uh, framework. So, Julia, I'll ask you the same question about perceptions about resiliency and reliability, especially in clean energy renewable. And then I'll just add a twist to one of the questions is here about U.S. resiliency against other tail events generally. How resilient, how reliable are we? And I'm sorry, I keep using those two words, resiliency and reliability interchangeably. I know they are not the same. Yeah, so to your first question, you know, I think for all of us that work in this space, it's one of those things that probably isn't listed in your job description, but it's other duties as a sign, right? So I think all of us, you know, because we're so passionate about these issues, we understand the urgency of this transition and the importance of, of what we're trying to accomplish, that we do end up spending a lot of our time dispelling myths, making sure that the public and especially decision makers, be that policymakers at the federal, state, and local level, really understand the facts. And so we, we all do spend a lot of time doing it, even if, you know, ultimately it is not SEPA's primary, my organization's primary mission is not to actually educate and work with the public. We end up spending a lot of time doing that because we all need to contribute to that. We all need to make sure everybody really understands the facts of the situation. But the tail events, it, it is a huge focus. I think we continue to get better. All levels of government, federal, state, and local, all have an increasing focus on making sure, especially around the fact, Tim, as you referenced earlier, we're becoming increasingly reliant upon the electric system. And therefore, we all understand that we need to continue to invest to ensure uh, that we are making sure that that system is available and operating in order for us to be able to maintain the quality of life that we've all come to expect. A question about how we rank in terms of reliability uh, versus other countries. Are we better than the OECD average? Are we the same? Are we worse? No, it's been very good in the United States. And I think most of the industrialized countries are in, in the same area. But these severe weather events may be adding up. Now, of course, most 
customer disruptions and outages are caused by the local distribution system. You know, a tree falls on a local power line. So that's, in terms of actual disruptions, it's usually much more a localized issue than a bulk power system. I will just mention, you know, the grid is getting smarter and that is a very important element of this transition. And to tie that together with the point we were just discussing, because the grid is getting smarter, the grid operators have much more visibility into what's actually happening on the system. So, you know, until the deployment of smart meters, for example, and we are not yet to 100% deployment across the country in the U.S., but we're getting there, uh, we're getting closer to, to everyone having a smart meter. But before the deployment of smart meters, utilities actually often did not know when a customer's power went out unless the customer called and told them. And I think a lot of people are surprised to hear that, but it really is smart meters and other smart technology that's being added to the distribution system that is allowing utilities to proactively know when there are outages and therefore significantly shorten the outage time for customers. And then on the other side, another important element of the grid getting smarter is actually predictive technologies. With AI and other smart intelligence on the grid, utilities are much better able to identify, predict when there might be a piece of equipment that is likely to fail in the near term. And so they're able to upgrade or change out that equipment in advance of the failure, which in the past, until it failed, they wouldn't know that that was coming. So there's a lot of elements that go into the smart grid. A big part of it is the two-way Uh, the two-way flow of power, the two-way communication with systems that customers are putting on the grid. But really, we have made a lot of progress. Still, the grid is is getting smarter and smarter every day. And is that pursuit of a smarter grid, is that driven by utilities wanting to do a better job in terms of customer service? Or is it simply cost savings and and load management and and dealing with the, the tail events or both? All of the above. All of the above. Rob, also in your testimony, you you make the point about doubling or tripling of national transmission capacity essential for affordable, reliable decarbonization. We've had representatives from Ford Motor Company and General Motors on talking about really exciting plans uh, about their fleet lineup uh, starting in 2030 or or even before going to fully electrified uh, vehicles. We're going to need a lot of electricity if we're going from 4% of sales to 40 or 50 or 60% in a very short period of time. Are we ready for that? And if not, just give us a sense of scale. What must happen over the next five or 10 years to get to that point where we have a much more electrified passenger fleet? Sure, yeah. Well, electrification of transportation and building heating are huge opportunities, I think, for decarbonization. And it's great to see the auto manufacturers really embracing that. Everybody I know who's got an electric car will never go back. They drive better and, um, you know, you figure out how and where you want to charge it. In terms of scale, it's actually sometimes not as big as people think. We basically returned to having load growth in this country. We, we had typically, you know, 3% load growth to, through sort of the, the 80s and 90s. It was maybe 7% in the 60s and 70s, and, uh, you know, bigger then than it was. But it, it was still, you know, 2 3% per year. And then it just got flat incandescent light bulbs uh, sort of went away and more efficiency led to basically flat load. And I think now we return to two, 3% increase because of electrification, which is easily something the system can plan for, but we do need to plan for it. We need to get those changes into the system plans 
And it will involve a lot of things at the distribution level and also the transmission level. You mentioned that doubling or tripling of transmission capacity that's coming out of these kind of nationwide decarbonization studies that find you not only need to access the remote low cost resources, but you end up needing to deliver power back and forth across areas because the wind's not blowing in one place, it's blowing somewhere else and solar comes from different time zones and cloudy and sunny places. And you end up putting that all together along with the other firm resources and other resources by moving the power around across large geographic areas. So we do need to do that. We need to get busy now. It takes 10 years to build these lines. There's gonna be a tremendous amount of transmission investment needed. So I think investors should be looking at that space. There are policies uh, we can talk about in Washington and Congress and with the administration to advance that. So I think there's going to be a lot of a lot of changes in focus in this area. Yeah, we'll come back to some of the challenges and also the resources that will be needed. Did you ask the same question? So is it is it twofolding? Is it 20%, 30%, 300%? What, how much capacity increase do we need over the next decade if we are indeed going to hit our targets in our electrified passenger fleet? You know, I don't have an exact number, and I also think it is going to vary based on different regions of the country, right? We're going to see different states electrify faster than others. It's going to vary. But I think the point that I wanted to make sure that we touched on was I mentioned earlier, our industry is very highly regulated. And when it comes particularly to electric vehicles, the, the state regulatory process and structures are critical to our success in this. And specifically when it comes to utility rate design. And the reason for this is because it is going to be much more expensive and challenging if everyone is driving an electric vehicle and they come home and they all plug their car into their garage at the same time at, you know, 5, 6, 7 p.m., right? That totally changes the amount of power we're going to need to keep the system in balance, as opposed to if we can put in place smart rate designs there's lots of approaches to this. You know, some of it can be consumer behavior. You know, you're, you're looking for ways to incentivize consumers to make different decisions, to plug in at different times of day. But also the ideal is really getting to a place where the system is smart enough that it essentially makes those decisions on behalf of customers, making sure that it understands any customer's specific objectives and doesn't go outside those, those boundaries. Uh, but we really do need to see pretty significant changes to the way in which utilities are regulated in terms of the way we design electricity rates in order to assure, again, that this is happening in the most affordable way for all customers and not artificially increasing the price of this transition. Rob, I wasn't going to get to regulation yet, but since you raised it, I'm going to. In the late 1990s, I had a job offer from Enron. I didn't take it, uh, and they went out of business uh, a, a year later in a in a fiery crash, as we all remember. But you know, their point at the time was about deregulation. That regulation was killing generation and transmission. That there was a movement at the time for deregulation. Do we need deregulation? Do we need more regulation? Do we need different kind of regulation? Just on a broad scale, what's the regulatory solution? It's funny you mentioned that, Tim. We, we share that experience. I turned down a job from Enron two months before the crash. And I, I wish I could say it's because I knew something. It was actually just so I could get my kids near the grandparents for babysitting purposes and take a different job. But I always kind of chafed at the concepts of deregulation versus regulation. It, it is a highly regulated industry, no matter what, because of the, you know, the, the public safety, public interest, and the, your, I'm sure, economists in the crowd will 
recognize the, the public goods and, and uh, natural monopoly characteristics of uh, power systems, especially transmission and distribution are still natural monopolies and you know require large-scale regulated operations. So it has been the generation sector that really became competitive and it can be competitive, but with just different kinds of regulations. You don't have to put it in a utility rate base. You can have the utilities competitively procure across many generators. And then some states also chose retail competition. So it was it's still very regulated, but regulated in a different way. Some states at the retail end many states, most states at the uh, generation end. And I think that's very valuable to save consumers a tremendous amount of money and you can operate perfectly reliably, but you still do still have to regulate. It's just regulated in a, in a different way. Let's then switch you. But what are the biggest roadblocks to modernizing, however you want to define modernizing? Is it regulation is about uh, siding power lines and uh, you know land use uh, regulations? Is it about technology? What are the big roadblocks? Julian, I'll come back to you, Rob. Yeah, I think I'll go right back to the state regulatory issues, particularly on the distribution side of the system. And we think about the utility business model, the way in which utilities are designed to make money historically does not incentivize the type of change that we need to embrace new technologies, to embrace new operating practices, to ensure that both the utilities and their customers can deploy clean distributed energy resources. So we're seeing a lot of tests, pilots, experimentation around things like performance-based incentives for utilities, rather than the traditional method, instead saying, here are the outcomes we're looking for from the utility, be that customer satisfaction, clean energy delivered, interconnection times for clean energy systems, and allowing the utility to earn based on their performance towards those objectives, or in fact, be penalized if, if they don't perform. So there's some experimentation happening. We need to see more of that. Really evolving the utility business model is very challenging. There's the regulatory component, but there is also the nature of their business requires a lot of cultural change. I mean, that's something my organization also spends a lot of time thinking about is, is the cultural change that needs to happen within utilities. Because they are highly regulated, they are traditionally very conservative, very risk averse. And we need utilities to be incentivized to innovate. We need innovation within the utility to really, again, optimize the value that can be derived from these clean energy resources. Unfortunately, there are still a lot of roadblocks standing in the way. Rob, the biggest roadblocks, innovation, is it land use? Is it financial resources? And Washington now seems to be willing to start writing checks, uh, which we can get to as well. What, what do you see as the big roadblocks? I also will kind of go to these utility incentives. On the bulk power system, utility rate regulation is good at some things, but it's not good at uh, two things in particular. One is delivering more over existing wires. They actually don't get rewarded uh, for doing that. So there's gridded enhancing technologies, smart grid type things, but applied to the bulk power system that could be very beneficial and the utilities need a, a push under the current incentive regime to adopt those. That's number one. Number two is there's not really any functioning way to recover the cost of the large interstate highway type transmission lines. Utilities do have ways to recover costs on their local transmission and distribution systems through the standard regulatory process. But if you're building a line across two, three, four states, we don't really have a way to do that. So that's where some policy change is necessary. 
The Federal Energy Regulatory Commission here is reviewing both of those right now. They're both high on the priority list, which I think is great. And Congress is also looking at, at both of those issues, which also is great, and the administration. So hopefully we'll get some policy means to address those two major gaps, transmission siting and permitting. Those are certainly very challenging as well. There are some bills in Congress that would look at that. And there are some actions by the administration to look at highway and rail corridors and other ways to get uh, large-scale linear infrastructure built. We need a lot of work on a lot of different approaches to that. Generally, technology is not the barrier, right? We, we have the technology we need in most parts of this country to get, let's say, to 80% carbon-free. The hard part is getting from 80% to 100% um, in an affordable manner. And storage, we haven't mentioned storage at all in this conversation, and storage is going to be key to getting us all the way to a carbon-free energy system. We've had great advancements in battery storage over the past number of years, huge uh, cost declines, but we need significant advancements in long-duration storage and seasonal storage in order to ensure that we can balance the system with all of these renewable energy and and other uh, carbon-free energy technologies that are going to be available. So there's a lot of emphasis being put on long-duration storage and how do we really identify the new technologies in that space. We need to be working now. We need to be investing now in those technologies to ensure that they are actually commercially available and viable in the 2030 and 2040 timeframe in order to get them deployed to help us get to uh, 2050 targets. Uh, Julia, great for bringing that up. So on storage, can you describe a little bit more in detail, what do you mean by long-term storage? And two, where is the resource? Is this a national labs at the cutting edge? Is there money in the Biden infrastructure plan? Are you talking about private sector? So a little bit about what does it mean and where where do you see the uh, financing coming from? So right now with battery storage, that is fantastic in addressing really short duration minutes or maybe three or four hours on the grid. But we really need storage technologies that can help the system balance out when we're talking about days or with seasonal storage, right? I mean, there are times of the year where certain generating resources are much more available than other times of the year. Different regions have different resources, and so you're better able to balance just by having a larger footprint of the system, but having seasonal storage that can actually help shift those between seasons when the electricity is available in seasons of the year is going to make this whole transition much easier. We need days and even months um, of storage capabilities in order to really shift and keep that supply and demand in balance. In terms of investment, it is both private and public. There is a lot of focus within the Biden administration on these technologies, a lot of work happening at the national labs, but we do also need private investment. And so hydrogen is another really big emerging topic, obviously has multiple applications, but storage is one of those. We had the Gates Breakthrough Technologies folks on, and hydrogen, green hydrogen is a big issue for them as well as sustainable aviation fuel and and modular nuclear energy. Rob, so maybe you want to just uh, piggyback on what Julie just said. Does that technology currently exist? Is it in the laboratory and it just needs additional federal funding and then we need to deploy? Or is this where it really is science fiction and we're decades away? Uh, I'd say somewhere between the two. We need the short-term stuff, which lithium-ion batteries are great at. We need longer-term 
stuff, which is largely being developed. There are some companies out there and some different approaches being used. And of course, there's more we can do with the existing hydro reservoirs in most countries, including integrating the U.S. and Canadian grids more because there are terawatt hours of uh, storage sitting behind dams in Canada. So there are options for sort of a, a clean, firm type of resource and long duration storage. And I know it is a high R&D priority for both private sector and entities like Gates uh, companies, forty companies, and public R&D. And that, that's, I, I think, appropriate. That's a, a huge uh, need and opportunity. You know, after talking about infrastructure for decades, it sounds like it feels like we're really going to start doing it. We here at the IF are certainly committed to a decarbonized world and our industries as well. So we want to be an active partner with you in the process. So thank you for participating. We want to have you back someday. And thank you for all that you do. Thanks again for listening to IF's All About the Green podcast. This has been a great conversation. We thank our guests for another engaging dialogue on the implications of climate change in the financial services industry and the broader economy. For more episodes of All About the Green, please visit us at IIF.com and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.